Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings are available in the show description. Welcome back to That Podcast, in which the truth is out there. We jump down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, let AI run our lives for a while, and wonder if democracy stands a chance. In part one, we talked about 12 monkeys and about why it's easier for some people to believe that Bill Gates wants to microchip us using 5G rather than in run-of-the-mill structural inequality, government incompetence, and corporate greed. Since we're on the topic of Black Mirror-esque conspiracy theories of an apocalyptic sci-fi future, let's get into Act 2, where AI, that's artificial intelligence to you, takes over. So one of the craziest conspiracy theories that I heard was that apparently Neil Armstrong, during his flight to the moon, was walking on the moon and he heard the call of prayer, the Adhan, the Muslim way of calling people to come to prayer. And as soon as he returned to Earth, apparently he converted to Islam. I have lost my mother. I have not entirely lost her, but our relationship is certainly strained. Only the other day I chose to look through her Facebook profile and I could see the moment where she changed. In a photo album previously, there were pictures of my family, my children, her dogs, scenery, And then it begins to change. Suddenly, nothing of the above mentioned is there anymore. It's conspiracy infographics and memes saying the most obscure and absurd things you could imagine. Then COVID hit and she fell fast and deep into a rabbit hole. I remember her telling me children were being held in underground tunnels throughout the world, trafficked for sex and adrenochrome production. Adrenochrome is oxide adrenaline, I told her. It's used to clot blood. But in her world, a QAnon is an addictive drug that prevents ageing and is used by all the elites of the world. The one that struck me the hardest was when she sat me down and she told me not to be concerned or scared when all the lights go out, all the TVs stop broadcasting and the sun disappears for five days. I had the sudden urge of panic. It wasn't because I was scared of what would happen, but I started to realise that I might not ever get it back. So we created our support group There is some relief knowing that there are people out there that can relate and that there's an absolute safe space to vent. We create polls on how do you believe your loved ones fell into conspiracy theories or what do you think started it? And a lot of it we find is anxiety around COVID, past trauma 
and a lot of the time it's opioid abuse, but that's just our group. So yeah, we do mostly focus on support because unless you're armed to the teeth with evidence and deprogramming skills, it's near impossible to rescue anyone deeply embedded in these beliefs. You could show them all the medically and scientific peer-reviewed evidence in the world and these conspiracy theorists will just dismiss it as fake news. Some people do get out and a lot of people don't. I think we can all agree we're inundated with information, too much information, frankly, for one person to process, which is why we have data science, the discipline of trying to process huge amounts of information and distill it into something more manageable. At least that's the thinking. But is it true? To find out more and to try to understand data science, algorithms, and what it all has to do with misinformation, I spoke to Kathy O'Neill, a math PhD from Harvard who has worked as a data scientist and is the genius behind the book Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. Kathy. Yes. Can I ask you... Why is your hair turquoise? Well, can I can I be honest? I like the way teenagers interact with me when I have blue hair, um, which is to say they interact with me. Um, and when I had graying, brownish hair, I was invisible to teenagers. And teenagers are my favorite people because they ask the best questions. They have the most unfiltered opinions and... I just don't want to not be able to hang out with them. That's great. I find you cool as well. Oh, thanks. Even though we're just on radio. <laughs> <laughs> so we are talking about algorithms. Algorithms are things that bother me because I don't really understand them. And it'd be really useful if you could explain to people like myself what an algorithm is. I read about them in the paper. They seem to be controlling decision makers around the world. What an algorithm is, is a pattern matching system that uses historical information to look for patterns of what initial conditions led to success. But let me just dumb it down. If you are thinking about what to wear today, you go into your closet and you look around and you're like, oh, when I last wore that outfit, it did not lead to success. I was uncomfortable. When I wore that outfit, it did. I was comfortable. So here I'm defining success as being comfortable throughout the day. That's all. That's what predictive algorithms do. It says um, this will lead to success because it looks like things that in the past led to success. And this won't because it looks like this, things in the past that didn't. Now, that's very simple, but it also relies very heavily on two things, namely your definition of success. Because um, if I had said instead of comfortable, sexy, Right? It would be a totally different set of outfits that would be leading to success because typically, in fact, the least comfortable outfits are the sexiest. Yep. And also it depends on the data that you have in terms of the wardrobe thing. It's just memories, right? But in general, data is digitized. It's in databases. And if it's incomplete or if it um, has different kinds of biases, the algorithm doesn't know that. So the algorithm is still going to propagate those patterns. It just says <laughs> in the future, it'll look like yep. what happened in the past. And that's what's happening with the stock market, because algorithms are used to buy and sell stocks in nanoseconds, basically. And does it always get it right? That's how I learned to build algorithms, actually. I was a futures trading algorithm designer. Right. And I, I'm glad you brought it up, because it's really important. 
algorithms don't always get it right. In fact, they get it wrong a lot. You only have to get it right 51% of the time in futures mm. trading to make a shit ton of money. Yep. <laughs> and that is exactly the technique that we learn, um, but, but it's being now used for important things where getting it right 51% of the time is not good enough. But we're yep. still using the same techniques with the same standards, essentially. Can I go, can I go back to the, the, yes. the first thing, though, like, which is why do you not understand it and yet it's being used? I mean, because it's really by construction, right? It is explicitly trying to intimidate you. It's explicitly trying to set it up so, like, you're not an expert. You don't have a PhD in math. You can't ask questions. How dare you ask questions? This is sophisticated and beyond you. That is intentional. And my biggest complaint about the system is that we should be asking questions because these algorithms are deciding our futures. Well, this sounds like what the Catholic Church did for so many centuries, had the priests speaking in Latin, a language that nobody understood except the priests, which gave them incredible power over people's lives. And it was interesting, your, your TED Talk, you showed it very visually. <laughs> with algorithms that were supposed to be choosing the teachers in uh, in New York, I believe. I can't remember where it was. The value-added model for teachers, which was an algorithm, a scoring system, that was supposed to sort of ferret out the worst teachers so we could get rid of those teachers and make teaching as an industry more accountable. It ended up being mostly a random number generator and scaring off good teachers that went to school systems that didn't have such an arbitrary system. So was that... Still 51% better than what it should have been or not. I would argue that was worse than anything else. It was essentially a random number generator, but it was replacing what was probably a much better system. I'm not an expert on pedagogy, but I would assume that the rubrics to decide whether a teacher is involving all the, t all the students in learning and there's good conversations and no one's throwing gumballs at each other um, – that any kind of such reasonable rubric would do much better. It, it's sort of inspectable and transparent, yeah. whereas this random number generator was sort of notified months after the end of the school year, along with you're fired if the number was too low or you got a bonus because the number was high, but no explanation for how to improve your score. But what's fascinating about that is that the system of uh, administration of that particular school system was absolved from any responsibility because the algorithm gave the answers. If you're able to hide behind, quote, science, you know, you let off the hook. Yeah, Terry, I think you've really nailed it because it often takes me much, much longer to get to this sort of fundamental philosophical point, but it's an important one, probably the most important one, which is that algorithms are now taking the place of difficult conversations that people want to avoid. And in doing so, they are like a perfect mechanism for avoiding accountability. So any weapon of math destruction, that's the name of my book. Yep. So, and the subtitle is How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And we're using a lot of examples of very, very important but secret and destructive algorithms that not only ruin a particular person's opportunities, but also actually backfire for society as a whole. And I argue actually make things worse overall in terms of inequality and a corrupt democracy. I consider these really terrible algorithms that are at scale, enormously important to people, secret and unfair. All of them if you think about it, are replacing a conversation that we don't want to have. Like, what makes a teacher a good teacher? Why do we sentence people to prison? And what are we expecting to get out of prison? What does 
the definition of success for a prison. Does this person deserve a job? Those are difficult things to answer. And instead of having an actual hard conversation, we're saying, well, let's just replace it with a silver bullet called an algorithm where the scores are secret. And by the way, Terry, the, the best example, I think, of a WMD that's come out recently were the A-levels yeah. in the UK. I mean, what wise guy decided to replace an entirely complicated historical system with an algorithm, and who thought that was going to work? When I go to Amazon... And I bought a lot of books on Amazon rather than the local bookshops, so I should burn in hell for a few years for that. But mm -hmm. it's convenient. I do it, and every time I get back onto Amazon to buy something else, it's telling me all the books I might like to read. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming Amazon, its business is based on the fact that they're suggesting to you and me, you liked that, so you want to buy this, don't you? And they sell enough that way to keep themselves Jeff, the richest man on the planet, which is the important thing. That's success. Right. His yes. algorithm is working. <laughs> yes. Oh, for sure. And by the way, I would argue that, like, that's not so bad. I do get a lot of good recommendations from Amazon. Yeah. So I'm, I'm certainly not out to suggest that algorithms are never useful. But at the same time, it would be useful to people like us. It would prey upon people. I'm wealthy and educated and I have money and I know what they're going to be asking me to do, which is buy stuff. Yeah. And as long as I can prevent myself from overspending, I'm fine. But my point is that that's not actually the stakes for people that don't fit my profile, right? So if a person who is living in a poor area goes to a credit card company's website, they will not be shown all the options that I will be shown. The website will be rendered based on the profile and the location where they're coming from to show the most predatory credit cards. There's actually no such thing anymore as informed consumers because consumers, if they try to inform themselves, yeah. get picked up on, profiled, and handed exactly what those companies want them to see, not what they want to learn about. Why can't you do an algorithm that does that, that fights against the historical prejudice to improve things, people? You can, but this, the incentives are not there to do so. So the people who own the algorithms make money doing it this way. So, of course, you could. You could build an algorithm that would reward people who are unlucky and deny those opportunities to people that already have them. But that's not how you make money. So how does one deal with this? How does one restrict it, <laughs> control it? Yeah. That's the problem. Because it's basically a big con game that's going on. And the beneficiaries are the latest billionaires or trillionaires that are roaming the planet. I don't know how to stop this. I will say that I certainly don't look to technologists to solve this problem because they're building the machine that benefits themselves. Yep. This is a human issue. This is a public interest right. question. Even the existing laws in regulated industries like hiring or credit or insurance, they're just not being enforced mm. in the presence of algorithms. They just don't know how to do it. Intimidation by marketing of mathematics and science, that stuff really works. It works on regulators and bureaucrats. And then secondarily, and I've spoken with policymakers, it's not like they're paying no attention, but they need like blood on the ground yeah. before they can act. And the thing about algorithmic harm is that it sort of slowly degrades people's quality of life. The politicians haven't really understood the impact. What I think is interesting, how people more and more are not relying on their common sense. And I think what is 
been, to me, the most interesting has been QAnon, how mm-hmm. people fell for that fantasy world of the Illuminati with the Democrats, uh, pedophiles in pizza parlor basements. I mean, utter madness. I'm not surprised by what's happened. I talked at the beginning of what a predictive algorithm is and how it's it's optimized to some definition of success. In the case of Facebook, the definition of success is just money. Yeah. So it optimizes, it sort of measures every single piece of content um, as soon as it appears for the first time by like how much do people spend on this and it it's worth. And so it privileges anything that keeps people on Facebook. Well, what keeps people on Facebook? <laughs> well, things that make them crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, things that make them angry or argue or feel really, really dissatisfied, outraged, or the opposite makes them feel like, aha, I finally found the evidence I was looking for that QAnon really does exist. And now I got to share this with all my friends, right? So it's feeding us in almost like a narcotic drip sense, uh, whatever appeals to us and keeps us in our little filter bubble. So, and it's just like a very strong correlation between how long do you stay on Facebook and how many ads right. do you click? Then Facebook probably doesn't like me on there because I'm always putting provocative things on there that I, I do it to hear how people respond. And I don't actually talk to these people, but I let them talk amongst themselves. And it's fascinating. Right. It's, it's, it's very selfish. I'm just trying to understand the world. But Terry, I think that means that Facebook loves you because you are <laughs> content generating the very kind of content that gets people riled up and keeps them on Facebook. So you're probably worth a lot to them. I'll get dinner with Zuckerberg soon, then, obviously. <laughs> you know, I, I started a company that audits algorithms, and my job is to be invited by a company to go into their system and see whether their algorithm is working, and by working I mean is like consistent with the values that they state. So I'm basically sort of forcing them to have the difficult conversation of like, what are your values? Who are the stakeholders here? And who is being harmed potentially by this? And the reason I mention that is because when people sometimes ask me like, how do we do better with social media? The system I just described, the framework of getting everyone who's impacted by that in a room and talk about like, how do we balance your interest against that person's interest? It's impossible. There's too many stakeholders. It's too large a conversation. Nobody can do it. So I really feel like it's just, it's a question mark whether we're going to get through it. And I will say one thing about it, which is that, and no offense to older people, (laughs) and when I say older, I mean my age and older, but we are more, somehow more vulnerable to this than younger people. A hypothesis is that we're going to reach herd immunity against QAnon slowly but surely through our children growing up being like, are you kidding me? That's insane. Not because we're going to actually have the QAnon true believers stop believing, but that they're just going to be fewer and fewer converts. Can I be positive? We've been dunking on science this whole time. And really, I want to differentiate. We've been dunking on pseudoscience, like bullshit science that doesn't deserve the name. I actually feel like the vaccines are such a miracle of science. And I think they will engender the trust that they deserve, because people will see the response. I use Twitter and I use Instagram. I've been using TikTok more recently as well. I used Facebook a lot when I was younger, but I think a lot of my generation have moved away from that now. I actually use Twitter to get a lot of my information. Um, I follow a lot of journalists, and I find it's actually kind of the quickest source of 
news sometimes with my mother's generation. There's a lot of misinformation spread on things like WhatsApp, whereas, because we've grown up around it and we know that a lot of it isn't how it seems, my generation are kind of more critical of that kind of information. During COVID, we were added to a, a street WhatsApp group and I've noticed on there things being shared quite regularly and there's no original source it's obviously just forwarded text and it was a lot of misinformation about vaccines or things like that there was so much of it over covid a lot of people can have quite a negative relationship with social media and i've noticed friends logging off social media for a while when they've been struggling with their mental health but personally i think i really enjoy the interaction with people that especially over lockdown people that you haven't been able to see still having that connection just like responses to when something happened, seeing the ripples of it on social media. But political events as well, it's fascinating how the internet responds so quickly now and everything is turned into humour. I think it's kind of a coping mechanism in a way. I think my whole relationship with politics was born from social media. I grew up in quite a small town. I wasn't very exposed to politics and then I think joining the internet kind of opened my eyes to a whole wealth of things. Obviously it can be damaging, but I've taken a lot of positives from it, definitely. Well, here to perk us up with his own fantastical musings about the seduction of mistruth is Christopher Brett Bailey with his surreal flight of fancy, I Saw Satan at a 7-Eleven. I was born in a one-horse town, two miles north of hell. Nothing much ever happened. Well, except for this one thing. I saw Satan at a 7-Eleven one time. He was dressing low profile, but it was definitely him. Red horns, barbed tail, cloven hoofs, black goatee. He were unmistakable. Satan was buying soy milk and 40 bucks worth of unleaded which pump sir said the attendant pump six said satan obviously the clerk looked up from his jerk off magazine started whimpering and sighing and sobbing and crying and pissing at the same time liquid shooting from his tear ducts in his dick hole like a water feature satan took this as an indication that his gas was on the house satan tossed a coin onto the counter to pay for the soy milk. The coin was red hot and glowing. The attendant picked it up off the counter. The coin sizzled, burning the skin from his hand. In shock, I opened my mouth and I dropped the toilet paper and the eggs I was carrying. And I ran outside. Satan was polishing his windshield. Satan drove a Corvette, obviously. I'm not a hippie. I'm lactose intolerant. What? I said to Satan. Are you talking to me? Yes, I'm talking to you. I saw you eyeing up my soy milk, and I want to get the record straight. I'm no hippie. Do you even know who I am? Yes, I said. I, I, I think I do, yes. Think? You think? I'm one of the two most powerful beings in this universe, and you think. Sure, I snickered. Okay, buddy, maybe you used to be, but... Used to? I am. Okay, buddy, whatever. And then I started to walk away. Get in. Satan glared. 
I got in the car. We sat there in an awkward silence, him revving the engine and doing breathing exercises. I'm not a hippie. I have respiratory issues. Satan, I'm getting the impression that you've lost your edge. Satan put his pedal to the floor, tires screaming out of the gas station, and we tore onto the road, and he ran 100 red lights in a row, swerving in order to hit an old woman who was crossing the road. The grill of the Corvette sliced her in two, her dentures flew up into the air, and the car's windshield wiper squeaked as segments of her face smeared against the glass. You don't stop for red lights, huh? I don't stop for anything. Satan cracked a beer and loaded a crack pipe and shifted gears and greased his pompadour all at the same time. But I especially, I especially don't stop for red lights. Cause red don't mean stop to the devil. Look at my skin. Would you associate the color red with the words no, stop, slow down. If you were born red? Satan explains that stop signs and stoplights, both being red, is an anti-communist plot. And an anti-Native American plot too. Satan, it turns out, is a communist. Satan, it turns out, is part Cherokee. The engine beats like a petrol heart. Gasoline flows through it, like blood. Pistons pump, like Dave Lombardo. Tires squealing like pinch harmonics. Think about it. Red doesn't mean stop, it means go. Red lipstick, red light district, red embers on the lit tip of a cigarette. Satan puffs his crack pipe as he tells me this. On the dashboard with his cloven fists. Red means go. Your brain knows that. Your heart knows that. Your loins know that. I look over at Satan's lap and I can see that his jeans are now full. The devil is DTF, obviously. I ask Satan to please pull over for me to take a piss. He says, That's what windows are for. He motions for me to unbuckle. And just as I am unbuckling and standing up on the seat to piss into the rushing wind, Satan pushes a button, which puts the convertible top down, and he hits a speed bump, and I bounce up out of the car, and I get tangled in electrical wires, like a low-flying bird in a recurring dream, a bird which probably represents freedom or self-actualization, which in some languages are the same word. I am gently electrocuted by the power lines that I am tangled in. It is not unpleasant. A weaker man would have given up the ghost and become an angel just then. But I've got the constitution for electrocution, and I am drawn to power in all of its forms. Satan points and laughs. He lets me sizzle. A bird perched on the power lines waddles over and starts pecking at my freckles, thinking they are seeds. Ow! Ow! I giggle, because it tickles. Satan, Satan, look at this bird. Satan reverses his car into the post. The wood splinters and falls like a chopped lumber. I come crashing down. That's not a bird. That's a camera with wings. Get away from it. Satan plucks all of the feathers off to prove it is a camera. It squawks in agony the whole time to prove it is a bird. They agree to disagree. Satan says, If you're a bird, fly away. And then launches it into the air. But the bird cannot fly because it doesn't have any feathers. So it just kind of falls onto the ground and writhes. 
I don't have a stomach for cruelty against animals. So I choose to believe that Satan was right. That that thing writhing in agony is probably just a camera. I feel the urge to cry, but think I probably shouldn't cry in front of his royal lowness and all. We drive a few more miles, me sulking. Satan says, you're sulking. I say, I'm not sulking. Satan says, you wanna hear music, we'll hear music. Satan opens his glove compartment. He has a vast collection of cassette tapes. Thrash metal, rockabilly, gangster rap, dubstep, country and western, and a compilation of classical music pieces, all deploying the tritone. Satan's taste is post-genre, obviously. All the tapes play backwards, of course, like After an hour of this, with Satan singing along, and he knew all the choruses in reverse, I Can't Get No Satisfaction becomes and Stand By Your Man becomes I switch the tape deck off. I say, can we please just listen to the dang radio? Satan says, the dang radio? I don't listen to the radio. It's nothing but jingles and sloganeering and mind control and prank phone calls. And music, I say. Yeah, and music. Look, kid, if you've got something to say, just say it. I wanted to tell him to go to hell. So instead I just said, I just said, you know, I said, go home. Fine. Satan said. We'll listen to the fucking radio. And he reached under his seat and he pulled out a tinfoil hat. It was a Stetson. It was a tinfoil Stetson hat. He pulled it on over his horns. Where's yours? He said. I don't have one. The AM, FM receiver goes both ways. Don't you know that? The radio won't be transmitting my deepest, darkest thoughts to the whole world. Yeah, whatever, man. And if you die of brain cancer, I won't be coming to your funeral, Satan says. He tips his tinfoil Stetson hat, and he turns the radio on. And the radio says, It's tuned for this station for your chance to win 500... I switch it off. You're right. The radio's crapola. boy," Satan said. Let's celebrate. He swerves and runs over a pair of hitchhikers. We get out to check they are dead. They are. Satan says, well, I hope the police get here soon. I love having my mugshot taken. The police don't come. So Satan sets off an emergency flare, hoping that will attract the authorities. It doesn't. We wait around for an hour or so, because Satan wants to take credit for the hit and run. Well, not run, because we haven't gone anywhere. But he wants the world to know that these dead hitchhikers are his doing. So Satan uses his backup emergency flare to set his car on fire in the hopes that the burning automobile will attract the police. It doesn't. We scream into the starry night. Police! Police! Come and get us! Nothing. So we decide to thumb a ride to the nearest police station to confess. It starts to rain. Satan rips off the brim of his Stetson hat and fashions me a tinfoil beret. I slip it on, feel the protective layer of tinfoil capping my skull like a second skin, 
a layer of crinkly metallic flesh, a barrier between me and the world. And now that I'm wearing it, I'm beginning to see the world the way he sees it. And for the first time ever, I can be sure that my brain is safe. I can be completely positive that my deepest, darkest thoughts are not being broadcast to the whole world. So thank you. Thank you, Satan. That was writer, performance artist, and musician Christopher Brett Bailey. Chris, thank you. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, now we are in the final act of the podcast, where we wonder about democracy. Kathy talked about how our digital information infrastructure means that the lucky get luckier and the unlucky get unluckier. But we still haven't properly dug into the big question yet. What are the consequences? We've spoken a lot about the bad actors in this age of misinformation, the conspiracy theorists, the rich corporations that enable them. So let's leave on a note of some hope. I thought I'd talk to one of the good guys. I went to Mary Fitzgerald, an honest-to-God journalist and the CEO of independent global media organization, Open Democracy. Today, I finally got off my ass enough to look at Open Democracy. He's going to have to speak to you, Mary. And I was blown away, I think is the technical term. 
I thought it was incredible. I, I just started reading, and I couldn't stop reading because you've got such good writers at work. And I'm going to ask a question. How do you manage to do this? How do you afford to do this? Well, it's blood, sweat and tears, if I'm completely honest. You know, Open Democracy is there to do journalism, which challenges power and inspires change all across the world. So our purpose is not just to tell you what's going wrong with the world, because that's very important, exposing abuse of power and what's going on and what's wrong is a very, very important part of journalism of holding power to account. But we also try and show our people and audiences the ways that things can be different. That's the inspiring change part of it. It's very disempowering to constantly experience all the grim news and all the corruption and cynicism and abuse of power that we see every day in our news cycle and in our news diet. So we try and lift up voices that are trying to make a difference and, and change things. And it's really hard because we are not funded by dark money. We don't have corporate or commercial sponsorship. We're funded by a number of grants and foundations and also by thousands of readers all over the world who think that our work is worth five or 10 or 15 quid or euros or pesos or dollars a month. And it's incredibly inspiring that people feel that way about what we do. We don't have a paywall. We don't have ads. So people voluntarily support us, uh, which I think is the biggest validation of the work possible. And it's something that really inspires and motivates our team every day. So... I had the honour and privilege of watching the new year of 2021 be ushered in in the state of Georgia, which is where I was born back in 1983. I was there in Atlanta and I travelled across the state and I saw a ferociously well-organised, passionate, authentic, bottom-up, connected set of organising movements make history in that state kick racists out of office, change the balance of power in Washington. When Senator Warnock was born, both of Georgia's senators were racial segregationists. He's their first black senator and only the 11th um, black senator in the United States. Watching that happen against all the odds with reams of misinformation, violence, threats, dog whistles, you know, it was watching hope and authenticity <laughs> and... I guess, grassroots communities coming together and organising for on behalf of the people that they serve was just a total privilege and honour. And that's also called journalism and communicating that to the rest of the world was absolutely fantastic, particularly after the year we've just had. So politics can also be the art of the possible and journalism can be the art of telling the story of what's possible. And I think we try and harness that in open democracy in lots of different ways. We try and unlock good ideas from ivory towers. So when academics have fantastic ideas that are too wrapped up in jargon for anyone to understand, then we try and communicate those ideas effectively to a wider audience. And we try and lift up the voices of those grassroots movements that, that are making change at the community and, and the local level. And yeah, we do hard-hitting investigative journalism, which exposes how power is being abused and corrupted and how dark money is flowing into politics and how we're being lied to and cheated. But this is what excites me because I've become an old cynic because I'm a product of the 60s. And I remember before I left America, the war was going on. The protests against the Vietnam War were growing and it was incredibly peaceful. There were all the younger hippies with flowers having a wonderful time putting flowers into the barrels of the policemen's guns and things like kissing the policemen. It was really nice. And even the front line between the policemen and the demonstrators was very jolly. And suddenly this group of Harley Davidson riding policemen drove right into this crowd. And this 
peaceful, happy, giggling crowd suddenly started shouting at the police, and behind them came another line of police, full tilt, running in with batons charging, and they just smashed into everybody. It was unbelievably brutal. I just, I remember, I saw myself in the news later that night being hoisted up by my hair and thrown to the ground. But the end result of all that was that evening, next day, the LA Times wrote about this horrible left-wing, communist, hippie, uh, violent protest. And the L.A. Free Press, which was an independent uh, newspaper, they were out on the streets the next day with interviews with the people who were there who had been beaten up, and they were handing it out on street corners, giving it to passing motorists. The L.A. Times reporters finally rebelled and said, the L.A. Free Press is telling the truth. We are telling lies. The reporters actually made the change. They forced the editors to rewrite all the stories in the following weekend. The L.A. Times recanted everything. And I thought, that is what journalism is about and should be. And it's nice to see that open democracy is in the same in the same trap that the LA Free Press was. No money, not reaching what the Times or the Mail or any of the Telegraph reach, but telling the truth. And when I was reading it today, I was felt I'm almost back when I was young and optimistic before I became what I am now. <laughs> well, well, thank you. And here are some reasons to be optimistic as well, which is you talked about. Uh, this paper that was distributing paper by paper, person by person to, to motorists. The internet has created a lot of problems, right? Social media has amplified a lot of misinformation and hate and um, toxicity. On the other hand, it's freed us up to reach far bigger and wider audiences, far more effectively and far more cheaply. And, you know, the other thing is, is that, yes, we're, we're a small outlet and you should definitely support us. You know, go to support.opendemocracy.net because we need every dime we can get. <laughs> but on the other hand, our stories do get into much larger outlets across the spectrum. So we've been quoted and reported in everywhere from the New York Times to the Yorkshire Post, all across the BBC, the Daily Mail, you know, the, across the political spectrum because we unearth really good, important and powerful stories, which yeah. then travel across the media and put pressure on politicians and those abusing power in all kinds of different ways. And you, you may not know that the story about the, the cuts to foreign aid in the UK, for example, came from open democracy, but it's leading the BBC News. Really? That's great. And so that is the democratisation of our world that the internet promised. How long has it taken you to assemble to be able to do what you're doing these days? Well, um, Open Democracy has been around since 2001 when the idea of web-only publishing was radical. <laughs> um, I've, I've been in charge since 2014. But when 2016 happened, I think people began to understand, you know, Brexit and Trump and everything. People began to understand why you don't really have democracy unless you have high-quality, trustworthy, accountable journalism. And so I'll give you an example. Um, back at the start of the pandemic, we noticed that the UK government had been quietly doing a number of secretive deals with major tech firms to try and combat the pandemic. And they were using our sensitive personal health information, which is held by the NHS, to try and track this disease. Now, of course, as a short-term emergency response, perhaps there's nothing wrong with doing this in principle. But we wanted to see what these deals involved. And so we put in freedom of information requests to be able to see the contracts, to be able to see how 
our government was trading our personal health information with Palantir and other big tech firms. And we got concerned and suspicious when those FOI requests were ignored. We kept pushing and we kept pushing. And it turned out that far from being short-term emergency COVID measures, this was part of a much wider project to embed big big private tech firms in the NHS. And we ended up working with this fantastic legal outfit called Foxglove, who run by these three absolutely brilliant women lawyers. And they identified the opportunity to bring a lawsuit to try and force transparency from the British government. What the pandemic has given this government an opportunity to do is to just usher in all these new massive lucrative deals with private firms and these new, much more casual, much less accountable, much less scrutinised ways of doing government business. Everything from not having to have live press briefings, which means that they can just switch journalists off when they're asking difficult questions, through to not having a full House of Commons. So parliamentary processes and procedures don't allow the opposition to scrutinise government in the way they did previously. And unless we hold them to account for this, this will become the new normal, the new way of not involving citizens in what's going on. It takes every element of civil society finding common cause and and pushing in the same direction to to get stuff done. But it shows what's possible if people who have different expertises and talents and perspectives and knowledge get together and do stuff. (laughs) Because they're very complex things and you want people with this great array of talent to agree to work together. And I think my whole life has been based on community of one form or another from um, countryside, little place in Minnesota, to college, which was a great time. This great mixture of people all working, arguing, getting things done. And then you move out of that and get involved with some comedy people and make things, because it's a group working together with very different skills, different views (laughs) of the world, and yet agreeing to work together. And I thought with Brexit and with Trump's election in America, that had broken down almost completely in two societies. And But you keep coming up with positive fruits and little flowers blossoming. And I'm getting very concerned because I wanted just to be an old curmudgeon for the rest of my life <laughs> and, and, and not get involved anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean about that community. And, you know, one of the reasons I became a journalist is that I really enjoy talking to and asking questions of people I disagree with. And I find it fascinating to figure out how people who are different from me, who see things differently from me, tick. And I think we're really losing that art as a society as a whole. And so I've given you lots of reasons for optimism, but it's a shade of darkness now. I think it's very easy for us all to get sort of lost in our own political tribes. And that's happening for a reason. It's because we have these massive, unaccountable technology companies that are generating vast, disgusting profits from algorithms which polarize us and drive us deeper into our own filter bubbles and echo chambers do. And yeah, lockdown has made that much worse because we're all just online. Not having conversations with people who see the world differently, who have different life experiences and perspectives, is really dangerous in the long term. During Brexit, I was posting a lot because I was a Remainer and I thought it was a bad idea. And what what struck me at that time was how 
angry the Brexiteers were. They didn't want to argue. They wanted to shout and damn anybody who didn't agree with them, where the Remainers were a bit more sensible. And I thought, this is horrible what I'm watching here. This is not good times coming up, folks. It's going to get worse. Well, indeed, you're absolutely right. It was going to get worse because then if you if you heard the conversations that yeah. Remainers were having after um, the Brexit vote, it was just as shrill. You started hearing Remainers speaking right. in exactly the same way, not listening, being very shrill, um, groupthink, misinformation. And that's the thing about fundamentalism. There is no argument anymore. There's no discussion. And the most radical thing we can do in the face of all fundamentalism, left-wing fundamentalism, right-wing fundamentalism, yep. religious fundamentalism, is keep having conversations, difficult conversations with people who we disagree with and keep surrounding ourselves with people who are going to challenge our yeah. preconceptions and our judgments. Um, and doing so in a respectful and open and, and tolerant way. But that's the most kind of radical act of subversion. It may be that there's too much information out there that you get lost in it all or get to the point, I don't want to hear any more. I've had it. And then you become a hermit like I did for the last few months. Well, yeah, being a hermit sometimes, retreating sometimes is a healthy strategy. But I want to know what's made you laugh most recently. So what's something that you've seen or heard that has made you laugh? Nothing. Nothing, nothing makes me laugh. I think the world is horrible at the moment. The only, actually, the one one thing that makes me laugh is my four-year-old granddaughter. Mm. She's the only thing that makes life worth living these days because she's got a great sense of humor. She she it's wonderful to watch this little creature blossoming and becoming. What you made me think of just then was the way that children see the world so differently. So as a right on left-wing parent, I've made sure that my daughter reads all about the stories of, of social justice pioneers that have come before her, Rosa Parks, Emmeline Pankhurst, etc. And I thought this was a very clever and important thing to do as a parent. And actually, what's really interesting is that in reading these books with her, I've had to explain how messed up the world was, and still is in some ways, but she just doesn't come at it from that perspective. So I mean, she asked my, my uh, younger sister, oh, um, auntie, why don't you have a husband or a wife? You know? And, and when, I, when I read her the story of Rosa Parks, I realised that she never, she's got lots of friends from all um, racial backgrounds, you know, ev every colour under the sun. She goes from one yeah. of multicultural London schools. And she hadn't realised yeah. that some of her friends had a different skin colour from her until we had the Rosa Parks conversation. Oh. So I love my kids because they make me laugh, but I also love the way that they just see the world so completely differently and you forcing yourself to explain things to them. You realise how messed up things are and, and how they're already seeing things differently. And I think that's really inspiring and encouraging. On the primary level, I use social media just to connect with my friends, but I'm also a social media manager for Her Campus Bristol, which is a student media organisation. It's such a hard balance to strike with social media because on the one hand you get this idea that it's just activism and people just put stuff on their stories but they don't really engage with the issues, which you can see with certain people, they just sort of put it on their stories and you think you never talk about this elsewhere or do anything about it and the other thing is also misinformation which I always struggle with because me personally as someone who's interested in journalism 
I look at an infographic and I try and track down the sources first, or I think, where is this information coming from? But I know that there are certain people in my peer groups who might not do that. So one example was with the Bristol protests recently. So I was there at the time. And I think it definitely was harder for the protesters' point of view to get out in the mainstream media. But the local media were really good. And it was really interesting, actually, because I remember after a few of the BBC stories had run and it was framing it very much as a riot police conflict, lots of people from local media like Bristol 24-7 were saying that they'd never seen that much violence from both sides and never seen that much violence from police as well. So it seemed like even the local media were coming out and saying that it wasn't an accurate reflection. And I think for a lot of us there, we felt that maybe the full story wasn't being told. The kind of people who were trying to keep the peace and the protest liaisons and things like that had completely been missed out of the story, it felt like. I think it's partly dependent on how you engage with the media. So I definitely think in both young and old generations, there is lessons to be learned about how to engage with information online, how to identify misinformation, perhaps especially people who are constantly engaging with different forms of media. So kind of mixing the information that they get from publications and on social media, they might have some real lessons to teach both to the older generation and the younger generation. From my point of view, I think it's often the artists, the truly crazy people and little children who've got the freedom to look beyond what we are told is possible and to be able to imagine and question the reality that we're constantly being sold. Artists can be like prophets sometimes, so to bring this episode to an end, I'm going to leave you with a creative commission, this time by Olivier Award winner Steph Smith, about why we even need such a pesky concept like truth in the first place. Thank you for listening, and here is the Truth Fairy. There was blood everywhere, all over me. All of my top, all of everything. I think you're being dramatic. Honestly, it was like whoosh. It was just a baby tooth falling out, not a battle. I didn't know I had any baby teeth left. Neither did I. Isn't that the kind of thing mums should know? (laughs) I've not been counting your teeth, kiddo. Too busy trying to keep you alive. Now, go and change your top, please. Uh, Come on, mum. Blood on your t-shirt. It has called social services written all over it. Go, now. Hold on. If you don't get up those stairs in five... How much will I get for it? For what? The tooth. Oh. It used to be a pound for the small ones, but this guy? I mean, mum. She's like the size of a chicken nugget. I think it's just a flat rate. Molars or canine or... What? The tooth fairy, love. What about her? Nothing, love. So, how much? Two pounds left under her pillow just to give the lie a little more life. Because I wanted her to have the blanket of belief before she can't, or won't. Because I look at her and I know it's limited. This time when there is no questioning or quandaries, the nicety of naivety pleases me. Mum, you see a two-pound coin? Mm Mm-hmm. It's much bigger than a pound coin. Your point, caller? How does she carry it? The Tooth Fairy. Magic. But there's this girl at school who said that magic doesn't exist unless you're a witch or a vampire. Well, what does she know? But I was thinking, it just doesn't add up, does it? 
This tooth fairy situation. I just don't get how it could all work. How her magic could be real. Well, do you want her to be real? What do you mean? Well, it's just a question. Uh, would you like the tooth fairy to be real? Yeah, I suppose. Then maybe that's enough. It's enough to believe she's real. You really think that? Sure, why not? Well, plenty of reasons. And then she comes home from school with her heart and head full of steam. Some little kid has popped the bubble of belief, embarrassed her for believing in the tooth fairy. For the first time, she felt foolish. For the first time, the short, sharp slice of shame. And my words were held against me like a weapon. You lied about her existing! You lied! It was only a white lie. And now how am I meant to believe you about anything? It was meant to be fun. Something cute for kids so they don't mind losing their teeth. Just a tiny white lie. It didn't hurt anyone. And you got a few bucks out of it. But it was still a lie. And I just believed it because you told me it. Well, everything... Nearly everything I say to you is true. 99.999% is the truth. But everyone lies a little. We can't just go around talking the truth. Why? Because it's too hard. The truth can be a tricky thing. And sometimes it's hard to tell what the truth even is. Sometimes the truth is many things, many complicated things. You'll understand when you're older. If you ask me, it sounds like growing up is a lie. We didn't talk for days after that. My little girl turned into a teenager overnight because she started to understand the truth wasn't always black or white. Misinformation over a missing tooth. All the other children I'd known had quietly accepted that you had to grow out of childish fantasies. But this turned into tartar and plaque, sticking to everything, rotting the root and the reason, causing her to question everything. She asked if the sky was actually blue, if oranges tasted the same to everyone, if maths class even mattered. Each question harder to answer. That tiny teenager-to-be pulled on a thread and now she couldn't let go. She was enraged, and I started to wonder if her rage was right. Because I started to realise those little lies, we tell them ourselves, are the bricks that hold up the bigger truths that give meaning and reason and purpose and the need to believe. So human, humble, harmful. My mother believed in God. She believed it made the shit tip of a life she'd had worthwhile if the next part of existence was altogether more heavenly. Her belief kept her alive and it kept her warm and it kept her scared. Because she always said, if you question everything, you'll go mad, sad or bad. But I'm starting to wonder if you'd be the sanest person to be sectioned. Because I see that in this little person prowling around our home, pushing at the facts in case they are fantasies. Trying to find the truth. What else have you made up? Because it was just me and her. What else are you lying about? These days, it's just me and her. Because you said, Dad would love me forever. He left last spring. And has already started a new family. And it has made her scared. And the last thing she needed was something else collapsing. I didn't think, I didn't think this would be the thing. It was just a silly story to calm a kid. But belief is a life boy, and it's true, some of us are clinging on to rubbish. But we need to cling on to something. You said he'd come back. I know. 
You said it would only be for a little while. Oh, no. You said he loved me. Oh, darling, his love for you isn't a lie. Just as my love for you isn't a lie, you've got two parents who couldn't love you more. How am I meant to know? How do I know it's not just a trick? Why would I lie about that? There is plenty of proof of our love for each other, me and you. And maybe you just have to believe me when I say I love you. Don't you think? I'm not sure. And she sulked out, slamming the door, wounded and wondering, that little woman of mine. Over dinner, I explained all the ways we show each other love, but nothing. Then at bedtime, I tried to hug her and hold her in the twilight, but nothing. I turn off the light and I tell her. What did you say? I said... Your father's love for me was a lie. That much is true. At the end of the day, he didn't love me. Or he didn't love me enough to stay. I wasn't enough. But you, kiddo, he loves you. That was never in any doubt. I can't deny him that. He loves the very skeleton of you. There. That's the truth. Mum, can you... Yes, sweetheart? Can you keep the whole light on tonight? And that's it. Suffocating silence. I hide behind her door waiting to be called back in. Thinking of that time when I was in my 20s and I went through this phase of thinking society was just a simulation, an experiment just playing itself out at the expense of our happiness. But all that passed, all that prodding and probing. Partly because I started drinking less and partly because questioning is exhausting. And threatening. Because all of this, all of this everything, only has meaning because we give it meaning. And with that, 40 minutes has flown past. And I realise she hasn't called me back. Her breath has turned to the beat of sleep and I don't know what to do. Suffocating silence. So, despite myself, I grab the gin and drink until my breath feels thin and the world spins. And I drink and I doubt and I drink and I doubt. And everything undoes itself, quickly and quietly, like pulling a thread through a needle. There is no truth. Nothing tangible, just... The only thing I feel is my tongue brush against my teeth. The tip of it toying with the edge of my incisor, over it again and again. Then I take my finger to my gum line, trace the outline. I push it a little. But there's no give in the gum. The tooth is attached. I push it a little harder. Nothing. So I walk into the kitchen without even blinking and I pull the hammer out. And I aim it towards my incisor. Because I want her to know love isn't a lie. It's as true as teeth. Please let love not be a lie. 
And I charge the hammer into that one specific tooth. And again. And again. There was blood everywhere. All over me. All of my top. All of everything. And I reach into my mouth and twist a tooth out. Proof. Proof that I exist. Mum? And it's morning, and my beautiful baby girl is standing there, shocked and shaken at the sight of me. Are you hurt? I'm sorry, darling. I, It's been a lot, hasn't it? All this everything. What happened? I don't know. I don't know what happened. I'm sorry. This must be a shock, and you shouldn't see me like... It's nothing to worry about. I just felt a bit... I love you. And then she crawls into my arms and she turns back from being a teenager to being a tiny little girl. I feel exhausted and ashamed. And I promise to never do anything like this again. She holds out the two pound coin and places it in my palm. I believe you. Part two of that podcast, in which the truth is out there. We jump down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole, let AI run our lives for a while, and wonder if democracy stands a chance, was hosted by Terry Gilliam, and featured Dr. Cathy O'Neill, Mary Fitzgerald, and contributions from members of the public. I Saw Satan at the 7-Eleven was written and performed by Christopher Brett Bailey and directed by Richard Twyman, with sound design by Mike Winship. The Truth Fairy was written by Steph Smith. Maya was played by Jessica Fosterkue. Theo was played by Hannah Doe. It was directed by Debbie Hannon, with sound design by Mike Winship. The host script was written by Jennifer Bax, with Holly Gilliam and Terry Gilliam. Full series production credits are available in the show description. That podcast is a Storyglass and ETT co-production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.